One, two, three, four. Welcome to Convergence with Oladeji Tiamu. So this episode is all about the role blockchain technology, game theory, and crypto economics can have with online dispute resolution. So if you are unfamiliar with any of these terms, buckle up. Uh, this conversation will provide an overview of these terms while also getting into a fair amount of detail for those who have already been initiated. For this conversation, I am pleased to have two experts in the field joining me. First is Federico Ast, who is the founder and CEO of Cleros a blockchain-based online dispute resolution platform. Cleros received the European Union's Blockchains for Social Good Award, and Cleros is also a Thomson Reuters grantee. In addition to his work with Cleros, Federico is a professor on Coursera, where he teaches classes on blockchain technology and legal tech in Spanish to thousands around the world. Next is Sophie Nappert, who is an arbitrator and scholar with extensive arbitration experience in both civil and common law jurisdictions. She has been at the forefront of exploring the role of blockchain technology and artificial intelligence in arbitration. Most recently, Sophie founded ArbTech, a worldwide online forum fostering dialogue on technology, dispute resolution, and the future of justice. All right, Sophie Nappert and Federico asked, welcome to Convergence. I'm really glad to have you both joined today. Thank you very much. Federico, I actually wanted to start with you because you're the first person on the show to also be teaching a massive open online course, a MOOC. Um, so you teach a class at Coursera uh, covering blockchain technology. And I've actually been a really strong supporter of these open online courses since 2011. Um, and I think it's beautiful that anyone, anywhere, at any age, as long as they have access to the internet, can learn about anything that professors are teaching. And these are from experts in the field like yourself. Um, so maybe open online courses also illustrates how technology is this fundamentally decentralizing and self-empowering tool. So, you know, before I write an ode to these open online courses, I just wanted to ask you and get a sense from you what your experience has been like teaching through Coursera and also exactly what you teach. Yeah, so I have uh, two courses. One uh, is about blockchain um, in general, you know, the financial aspects, uh, cryptocurrencies and the legal aspects, of course, smart contracts and, and then the DAOs and, well, how uh, blockchain is disrupting or transforming, you know, governance processes. Um, that's one course. And then I have another one. It's called the, the Lawyer of the Future. And it's basically a legal tech course where we discuss um, the well digital transformation of law um, some 
the impact of machine learning, um, like uh, you know, platforms adapt to like legal analytics, pre predictive uh, analytics for for trials, and then also of course, blockchain too, the smart contracts aspects and ODR systems, uh, how how they work, and also give some tips to well to lawyers who want to reinvent their career and well in the context of digital transformation of law. And to me, it's been amazing, you know, both um, have almost, you know, 25,000 students um, and, the, you know, and it's, as you mentioned, you know, it's a, another example of how, um, you know, technology and internet is giving opportunities to people who are uh, everywhere, right? Um, and I specifically wanted to do this courses in Spanish, because if you are an English speaking person, you, well, you can access to lots of resources on legal tech and blockchain, your, your language, but you know, there is a barrier for people who are not native English speakers and lots of people, you know, they don't speak English in my country in Argentina and Latin America either. Right, so it's a, it's a really great experience of, you know, helping people, you know, get the tools that they need to, to succeed in the world that, that is coming. Yeah, that's beautiful. And 25,000 students, that is, I mean, do, do you think you'll get to 1 million at some point? <laughs> you know, the thing, the, the, the funny thing with this is like, like 25,000 students sounds like a lot, but then you see other people who like have like, one, you know, yeah, one million, and you say, oh, but no, nobody likes my 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 lessons, my course. You know, it's not that's not much. But you know, yeah, if you think like this is a stadium, right? It's a lot of people who took the the the, the, the class, right? And yeah, it's, it's huge, it's huge. And you know, let me just tell you something. Uh, was Chile in a, um, uh, went there for a conference, speak at a conference, and you know, I'm at the airport, and I I go to the rental car agency. And the guy who uh, gives me the car that I rented, he tells me, uh, he tells me, are you Federico Ast? Uh, <laughs> and, and, I, and I was like, okay, my car was rejected or I was something. And no, but it, I, you know, I took your blockchain course and then, and you are helping me like transform my career to, to work on, you know, on technology and that. So the, see the impact, um, right? Uh, that these courses can have. Yeah, yeah. It's so powerful. I mean, you're essentially a professor celebrity, you know, it's like the Greek philosopher king for you, it's professor celebrity, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's the closest thing I can get to be a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I get the sense that what we're talking about here with the role of blockchain technology in dispute resolution is a pretty unique um, research and professional interest. So I was maybe a bit curious to hear from both of you, Sophie and Federico, about what attracted you to this field? What attracted me to this field? Um, I, I started to be interested in this uh, back in 2015, 2016, which sounds not very long ago, but in legal tech terms is like years ago, really, given the, the developments that have happened since, uh, especially with the pandemic, obviously. 
Um, because I quickly realized as, uh, as a decision maker, as an arbitrator, that uh, evidence was being given to me or put before me that had been gathered at the time mostly by algorithms, um, mainly in the area of damages or quantum experts. I've published and I've been interested in the past in the psychology of um, persuasion and advocacy and the impact that it has on the decision-making mind and your heuristic, your biases. And very quickly, it occurred to me that whatever was presented by technological means appeared almost infallible to the human mind. And so as a decision-maker, you question yourself, you say, well, what scope do I have to question or to disagree with results that have been provided by a machine that is so much quicker, so much accurate than a human as sifting through mountains of data. And how can I probe uh, the validity of that evidence? That's, that really is the, um, the, that was the trigger for me. Uh, and then um, I, I published uh, with Paul Cohen, an article in 2017, most, mostly dealing with, uh, with AI at the time. And then that, that um, brought me to, inquire about blockchain, which was a different, obviously a different beast, um, and took a course uh, in the field at um, the University of Oxford. And that's how I first came across Kleros. So that's that's my genesis. Um, well, my experience is, um, I'm, I'm from Argentina and, uh, you know, um, started my, 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 my background is in economics, actually, and, and philosophy. Um, started my career in working in the online media and particularly in a, a business section of an important newspaper and that got me in contact with all the startups ecosystem and innovation and I think it was like 2013 and people were starting to mention this new you know financial innovation of the cryptocurrencies and particular Bitcoin um, which obviously um, for Argentinians with you know this financial uh, application of some some technology um, in a country where you know you had like sixty percent inflation and lots of problems in governance, so people were uh, very interested in the financial applications, right? How you can use um, Bitcoin to just not to use uh, government issued money, which is being debased at every moment. Um, and uh, but I was I saw in blockchain another like potential which was the possibility of building um, governance systems right um, like you, you you can use smart contracts to build a, a, an organization that's going to work uh, specifically as it's intended to work it's, and no one can tamper with that and that was very powerful in the context of. Um, country like Argentina and, and lots of emerging economies where, you know, you don't, you, so there's lots of corruption, lots of problems to access justice. And so blockchain was very transformative uh, if from that perspective as well. So that's what got me interested in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And like Sophie, you're, you're touching on um, blockchain as kind of an alternative to AI um, dispute resolution facilitated systems and Federico, I think your point on um, 
how cryptocurrencies have been pretty transformative for for countries, especially that deal with hyperinflation. You know, my I have family in Nigeria, and similarly to Argentina, it's like every year the rate of inflation is just increasing and increasing, and the value of your money is just decreasing. Um, and it can be pretty devastating for communities, for families. And so sometimes like if, if you're in America, you can kind of overlook the, the negative impact that inflation can have. But once you step outside of uh, a select few countries that, that have low inflation and the significant amount of countries right now have a lot of inflation and Obviously, you know, uh, there are monetary policies in place going on right now that many people are saying will increase inflation for the future. So, so I get the sense that um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies like have an important role to play there. Um, and so we've thrown out blockchain a couple of times and uh, there's a possibility that some of our listeners might not really know what a blockchain actually is. Uh, for me, I just think of it as a, in a really simplistic terms, a distributed ledger where um, individuals, nodes in the system can kind of transact with each other to verify um, that transactions have occurred. What else would you add to that definition for listeners who might not really know what blockchain is? You know, um, after trying to explain blockchain in different ways, you know, I, the, I think the best way I found is um, uh, a metaphor with, you know, the monetary system of a tribe. Uh, it's called the Yaps, and it's a tribe that lives in the in the island of Palau in the Micronesia. And they they have this, um, their, their, their money is, um, and this is a real story. It's a, a, a rock, a coin, you know, it's made of stone. It weighs like 400 kilos. And since they couldn't like move it around, make payments, they just decided to um, leave the, 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 the stone in the same place and remember who was the owner, right, of, of these different stones. But so one alternative was to like designate and choose one member of the tribe to remember who the owner was. But that had the problem that this guy could like forget or could die or could, you know, be bribed and or could like uh, start charging fees for every transaction. So like what they, what they did, you know, it's um, they uh, have every member of the tribe remember uh, who the owner uh, of each rock is. And then, um, well, uh, they own, they, they each had a, they, they knew by heart the, who owned each rock. And from the beginning, of, from the moment the, the, the rock was, was first, you know, crafted and to the present time and all the people who had it in, over time. And so each of them had a, a, the same copy of this ledger. And so when someone wanted to make a payment to another one, so I say, okay, I'm going, guys, I'm going to send this rock that is like near the palm tree on the beach to Oladeji. And so everyone could like see me announcing this and everyone like could update their mental ledger to uh, say, okay, this rock goes from Federico to Oladeji. Uh, so if you replace the memory of these little guys by computers and, you know, this rock by some crypto asset like Bitcoin. So that's the main, you know, um, 
like intuition behind the blockchains, this um, network of computers that share, um, a, a, you know, digital um, database where they all have the same copy and uh, they and no one is the owner. You know, they are. We are all owners of this database. It's a public good, um, so no one can like tamper with it. No one can make arbitrary changes. Uh, and so this is how you know I try to explain blockchain. Maybe Sophie has some. A better idea but this is how i try to explain it to my students i think that's the best the best one i've heard so far of the very many uh and it explains why federico west is now a star uh, of the blockchain uh, education <laughs> i think it's a great explanation that's exactly what it is it's um and the difficult thing i think for the certainly the lawyerly mind to get your head around is the fact that there is no central authority um, for the moment anyway, um, and, and on the public blockchain. Obviously, there are versions of blockchains that function more like an intranet where you have permissions, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the, the more, um, the, the original concept. And I think Federico's um, analogy is very, very apt. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, I, I think, fundamental to understanding the type of work that Clearos is doing right now is obviously understanding what a blockchain actually is. And in the blockchain ODR space, I get the sense that uh, game theory and in crypto economics really has a essential role to play for managing and resolving disputes. Um, and once again, game theory and crypto economics could be two, uh, two concepts that some of our listeners not, might not be aware of. And my narrow definition of game theory would be just uh, using mathematical models to understand how individuals make decisions uh, with respect to counterparts. And maybe crypto economics, I'd just say, is merging game theory with cryptography. Um, and I recognize that both of you are experts in this field, basically. So what else would you add to those definitions for people who are still learning? I mean, I, I will just preface this because obviously Fede can, can say a lot more about uh, game theory and crypto economics than I can. I will just preface this by saying that, uh, to my knowledge, um, the, 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 the few players in the blockchain ODR platform, not all of them adhere to a, um, I would say, a purist or a strict game theory model. Uh, Kleros does, uh, and and Fede will will tell us how they do that. But uh, there is, I, I think there is um, uh, there is a certain recognition, I think, by some of the players that the strict game theory model might be difficult to um, leverage at a or to scale up at a more mainstream basis, and so they have shied away, I think, from being completely. Um, buying into that um, uh, that model, but but Kleros has, and it is um, uh, as as I found out in yesterday's community call, uh, well into uh, its development of uh, version 2.0 of its courts, um, which is a, much, uh, a very uh, sophisticated model of game theory. So I'm going to stop here and let Fede explain. Yeah, well. Um... I, I think a good analogy to, to, to understand this is, you know, is how the industry of encyclopedias evolved. You know, so in the beginning, you had the Britannica, right? 
And then, you know, Britannica was made with um, some editing, like you know, an editor and who was an expert in making encyclopedias. And this guy hired a number of writers, each of them expert in some topic, and they wrote um, articles and they assembled everything together and they had, you know, an encyclopedia, right? But then came the internet. And so what people started doing is, okay, let's translate this model of the Britannica encyclopedia into the internet. And that's how Encarta was born. You know, Encarta by Microsoft is basically an encyclopedia made in the old way where you have some editor and he hires a number of authors and they write articles. And then the only difference between Britannica and Encarta is that, um, well, uh, the distribution channel is different because Encarta distributes this through CD-ROMs first and then through, you know, the internet. Uh, and then what happened is that Britannica could like basically copy the model because um, they just had to do what they were doing, in, but in the internet, and that was perfectly fine. And they launched their online version. But then came another model, which was the Wikipedia model. And, and this was completely different because it was a completely overhauling of how the encyclopedia was, was made. So now you didn't have, you know, a, central expert who will who would like choose authors and then hire them and pay them to write articles you will have a decentralized community that self-regulates in order to produce a, an encyclopedia that people well started to use and as you know you know uh, Encarta doesn't exist anymore Britannica doesn't exist anymore and you know Wikipedia is what works now I think completely changed the way in which um, you know encyclopedias are, are made and no one will ever make an encyclopedia in the old way again. So you can use this analogy to, to, to think how game theory and crypto economics apply to the world of dispute resolution. So of course, you, you had um, the traditional methods of arbitration where you have uh, experts who are uh, you know chosen by parties to adjudicate some dispute and then they go and they meet in some place and then they, they make hearings and all that and then, well, they, they make a decision. Then, of course, you have a new version of this digital version, which is basically the same. You have an expert chosen by parties, and the process works more or less the same, but with, um, uh, well, online with Zoom. Uh, so, but it doesn't fundamentally change the way in which the dispute resolution procedure is done. And then you have the Wikipedia moment for, for arbitration, which is more like, um, yeah, you completely change how the, the model works in this case by using the crowd, the, the wisdom of the crowd in order to, to, to solve disputes. Um, this is done uh, well by economic incentives uh, and game theory. And you have like a number of, I can explain later if you want more, but basically you provide anyone from the internet uh, the chance to become a juror. And if they do honest work uh, following the rules of, of Kleros, um, they will earn money. And if they don't, well, they, they will lose money. So it's kind of, um, I think that is a good way to, to explain, you know, the encyclopedia metaphor. It's a good way to understand how, yeah, um, how this is evolving. Yeah, so... With, with the, with, sorry, Oladeji, but with the caveat, of course, that and, and I'm not going to harp on about this, but I, I, as the lawyer involved, I need to say this uh, with the caveat that, of course, in the Wikipedia uh, arena, obviously people 
um, can contribute rubbish, but they will not lose money for it. They might lose a certain reputation, although it's it's anonymous. But the game, the important thing from uh, a lawyer's perspective, trained in the more traditional system, is that it puts monetary incentive at the heart of justice. And now there are views about that. There may be moral views about that or ethical views about that. But that's essentially what the difference between. Um, what Federico was explaining in terms of Wikipedia and and what the Claris model model uh, offers. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I think this concept of the wisdom of the crowds is so fundamental to Claris and and like decentralized justice overall. And I when when I was learning about Claris, I used the an example of kind of Reddit to acquire information. You go to Reddit, and information is uh, posted by individuals. And honestly, people have a quasi monetary incentive to publish high quality things, because then they get awards that also have some type of monetary benefit to it. Um, and, and then they have the most popular is the one that is usually the most well researched, and the one that people support the most. And it doesn't have to be necessarily based on ideological perspectives, but just based on informational awareness raising. Uh, so, so I feel like the the internet has opened up all of these avenues for decentralization and crowdsourcing knowledge uh, skills in ways that the pre-internet era didn't have, and, and blockchains kind of. Um, go an extra level to allow a greater decentralization. You're absolutely right and central to what you say. And this is a topic of uh, current interest of mine uh, for both um, discussion and publication is that what I'm seeing is there is um, a great shifting taking place of the trust that users of dispute resolution are placing in the process and the decision makers. Uh, because on the internet uh, and in e-commerce, you are dealing with people who, are, who live essentially on social media, myself and many others, transact on it. And trust does not function in the same way as it does in arbitration or courts. You do not, as a litigant, place your trust in two or three or one arbitrator or judge, um, you know, imposed on you or chosen by, by your, even chosen by you, um, but you place your trust in your peers. And, um, and that to me is, the, is a very important disruption of how dispute resolution is progressing in future. Uh, you are seeing that people trust, and that's what Claros is banking on, of course, with the game theory model, the wisdom of crowds has a, can have a negative connotation, but for people transacting online, it has a very positive connotation. If only you think about, you know, the number of likes that you get for a post or for, um, as you say on Reddit, for example, uh, it has value. And likewise, for the decision of, uh, of a dispute that you may have, you place your trust in um, a number, a certain volume of people who are, who are your peers. And that is completely re revolutionary uh, for a decision maker uh, in a traditional system. Let me, let me here uh, also add, you know, this movement that we're seeing in 
decentralized justice and in the legal field. It's the same movement we're seeing in other industries. I already mentioned, um, you know, Wikipedia. So people are trusting an encyclopedia made by their peers, not by some authority who knows how to make encyclopedias. In the world of finance, people are trusting, you know, Bitcoin or crypto assets in general, which is um, basically, okay, you trust your peers to maintain this, this digital ledger of, of monetary units and not central banks. This is kind of a part of a broader movement that involves, um, and this we can discuss, I don't know, uh, why, so this, I would call it like backlash against the elites, um, increasing trust in, in peers um, for a number of new uh, social interactions that now tend to happen online. I don't know if I like that term backlash against the elites, but um, given, <laughs> given that I, I, I belong to the dinosaur generation uh, of arbitrators, but um, I, think, I think you're absolutely right that it is um, uh, more, I think, of um, turning your gaze towards something that feels closer to you, that feels less remote that feels more accessible, that you think will relate to the stuff that you're going through, especially in current times where we are going through unprecedented sort of uncertainty and, and hardship worldwide uh, because of the virus and, and, um, and current political movements. So, so definitely there is a, <clears throat> a very important shift going on there. Sophie, I just, I have to disagree that you were from the dinosaur generation because you are here with us talking about blockchain technology, and I feel like that is that, that's a quite <laughs> youthful you. activity. You are my hero. Thank you. But, I was uh, I was going to say the same. You are actually the, the good example of not being from the dinosaur generation. You you are like working on this uh, technology, right? Basically, that, that's very sweet. I uh, I meant I meant that my training, obviously, uh, and and where I work is a very traditional, conventional one uh, in legal terms, and that's what I meant by that. But thank gotcha. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I would even say that I feel like right now it is the permissionless generation that we're seeing. We're seeing it with Wikipedia, Reddit, and certainly with blockchain ODR like like Kleros, where uh, anyone as once again, as long as you have access to the internet, can engage with this similar to massive open online courses and you don't need to get admitted um, into a college to have Coursera access to Coursera um, you don't need to have sorry Federico you don't need to have a PhD to publish on Wikipedia as long as um, the information is precise enough so there's a certain level of permissionlessness that uh, I, I think prior eras had maybe less of a focus of on, or maybe more precisely, less appreciation for the value that can come from their peers as we're seeing today. And as well, less of an ability to communicate in, instantaneously. I think, I think the permissionlessness has really thrived because of that amazing um, ability that we have to communicate with people that possibly we have never met and will never meet again or might form a relationship with online, but it, it is very much this instantaneousness of communication. And, and, and this immediacy is also, I think, a great disruptive feature of blockchain ODR, ODR because um, there is no way that traditional systems, even expedited arbitration, 
even uh, you know summary court proceedings can match um, how quickly uh, matters are, are um, decided on Claros, for example, it's a matter of hours or at most days. Um, and, and so that, that's another factor that's very important. Yeah, and so we can say that blockchain ODR has a use case in comparison to traditional litigation and arbitration because of its speed. And historically, that's actually been an argument that proponents of artificial intelligence related ODR have proposed. You can resolve disputes quicker when artificial intelligence is, is supporting a third party neutral, for example. Uh, and, and Sophie, I wanted to go back to what you said a bit earlier where you were talking about how uh, in some of your research, you recognize how it was hard to disagree with AI um, and AI kind of is a black box. People who are engaging with AI don't really see the code and the algorithms that are influencing or directing the AI system. So I was curious to hear uh, from both of you about how blockchain ODR, something like Clearos, um, is a divergence or uh, presents a benefit to resolving disputes that AI-based ODR does not have. I mean, again, Fede will um, will be more informed than I am on me about this than uh, than I am. But uh, certainly, I, I think that AI is um, a nemesis for for Claros because uh, Claros is very much based on human minds uh, and and human minds converging. Uh, and the problem with AI is um, that even the coders lose sight in the machine learning process of how. Um, the algorithm comes to its conclusions. That what that means for the traditional decision makers, such as me, is that you have to rely on experts. And even these experts are going to be telling you at one point, I, I have to stop here. I don't know, I don't know how else, you know, how I can go forward and explain anything to you. Uh, Clarissa's model uh, is, is very much about, uh, although the, as I understand it, and, and Fede will tell me if I'm wrong, the selection of jurors is done uh, randomly according to an algorithm, the actual decision-making is human. Yeah, you know, um, there is this um, famous um, investor who was a founder of PayPal, co-founder with, with Elon Musk uh, called Peter Thiel. And he has this quite famous, um, you know, uh, quote, uh, he says, AI is uh, totalitarian and blockchain is libertarian. Uh, in the sense of, you know, um, you know, AI is, uh, when we think about AI, which of course it's super useful and, and we use it and it's great. It's the, the, the engine behind the Amazon, you know, recommendation engine and, you know, Netflix, it's awesome, but also has, you know, this um, applied to justice. It can have, um, quite negative, um, you know, implications. Um, in particular, if you think, for example, you know, the predictive analytics for trials, let's say that you now in order to uh, make more efficient the, 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 the court system, so the government decides that instead of you going to court, first you're going to go to a, you know, a pre, pre, previous step where, you know, some AI algorithm is going to um, like uh, assess your the case, and depending on the odds of this of you may, of you, you you winning, well, it will go or not go to trial, right? So now I'd say, 
okay, I go to court and then, you know, they, uh, they assess my case uh, with, the, with this robot tool. And, and they tell me, hey, look, you have 95% chance of losing. So you like, it's, this is not worth it for a judge to, to analyze this. So like, so you just, you don't have the right to go to trial. So the implications of this type of, of AI applications in this context could like deny the, the right to justice to, to lots of people, right? Um, so when you are designing one of these systems, you, you want, of course, you don't want to teach AI because AI is great because it's very efficient. It's very, you know, uh, it's fast. It's faster than Claros. It's faster. Uh, it's more, it's cheaper. But you need also to think of a, another instance that's going to be like a human-driven instance where humans are going to make decisions. So you may have a first instance with AI, right? But then you want to have another, you know, appeal round where humans are going to participate there. And so you can have your, let's stay in court, let's call it like that. And so, um, and a number of situations, they cannot be solved by, by AI because there are some subjective situations, interpretations, there are like, some things are simply not meant for, for AI. And I think that's where Claros can help. Yeah, and that, that feels precise. Like blockchains have this ability to empower individuals. AI, even though it presents efficiency benefits, it also disempowers individuals. Um, and, and so Federico, you're, you're the CEO um, at Cleros. And uh, I, I know relatively recently now, maybe a couple of months ago, you created this new concept around proof of humanity, which I think further strengthens the, the approach that you're taking with empowering individuals. And my understanding is it's proof of humanity is a mechanism that uh, is trying to solve problems where online bots are impersonating humans and artificial intelligence is manipulating uh, the public, right? We see this with, with Facebook uh, through spreading misinformation. In Myanmar, we've seen that. And proof of humanity seems to provide an opportunity to limit some of the negative externalities of artificial intelligence. So I, I wanted to explore proof of humanity a bit and just ask how that project has been going and what surprises you've found since launching. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. This is uh, something I'm very excited about. And um, you know, for, for a long time, you know, um, people or we have been uh, obsessed with them um, or interested with, uh, okay, what it's like, could robots start to replace humans and uh, how do we like tell a difference? And, um, you know, since the work of Alan Turing, 1950, he published this famous paper uh, where he presents the imitation game, where you put someone to like, interact with the machine and then the, this person has to decide whether the, 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 who is on the other side is a human or a machine. And, you know, they have to, Try to, to understand the, 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 the cues. So then, of course, we know Blade Runner. You know the Blade Runners who, who were trying to, um, you know, capture, detect these uh, robots. Um, um, this is a novel by, by Philip Dick in the from the 1960s, I think. And then, well, we have the movie with Harrison Ford, and and you know that dystopian 
uh, well, of course, Terminator as well, right? Especially the liquid metal one. Um, th th that dystopian aspect, you know, of a robot impersonating um, people, uh, well, this started to become like real uh, now on the internet, not on the not under the form of, you know, uh, looking like human type of bots, uh, but yes, in the form of being able to uh, emulate us um, like uh, through written text on the internet, like on, on Telegram, you know, I, I have like on Telegram, uh, I have many impersonators, like you have some bots that uh, maybe you have been a victim of one of my impersonators, Sophie, I don't know. I, I don't have that honor, but I know that there are many Federicos <laughs> on Telegram. Absolutely. Like you're you're on Telegram, and you you have um, like we have a, a Telegram group of Claros, and and you know someday then you are like just there, and then you get uh, like a message from a guy like me with my picture and my name, and then hey Ladeji, how are you? Uh, look, I'm 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 in trouble. I need you to send me like two Bitcoin uh, and. Uh, and you and you say what? Uh, okay, and then there is you know this is a bot. This is like AI, um, which a number of, with a number of rules, answering the most common you know replies by by humans. And then, of, of course, it's like it's like phishing email. You know they send like one million, and then 0.1 percent fall to it. Um, and well, uh, you know, and that works. That's a, that's a business model for the scammers. And add to this, you know, that it's becoming like. Um, AI becomes better at text, but also, well, deep fake. You know, imagine now it's not just some written text, it's like just some guy looking like Federico and with the Federico's voice, like the guy who you're speaking to, like could be like my impersonator, a bot, right? F Federico, could I just share how terrified I am of deep fakes? Like the, in, I want to say around 2014, there was the a Barack Obama impersonation. That, that was so real, but it was a deep fake. Uh, and I think like Tom Cruise has one out there that is basically Tom Cruise with his expressions, his voice, but it isn't actually Tom Cruise. So sorry to cut you off. I just have to share I how mean, how do you know that we're, that we're even dealing with Federico, the real Federico? <laughs> On this podcast, <laughs> that's, that, that's what I mean. That's that, that's what I mean. Like you, you, you don't, you don't know. But so imagine. So and this takes us to to proof of humanity. Like how can we make a system to detect these um, malicious AIs right uh, around the internet? So um, there are a number of uh, of um, you know at least for now you know uh, cues that gives you the that can give you some trust that the person that you have in front of you is a human, right? For example, if I record a video uh, of me like saying some things and with uh, like um, holding uh, my Ethereum address and then I submit the, um, the application from uh, Ethereum account and it matches with my uh, the sign I have in front of me and look in the camera and I have to say uh, a sentence. Um, so for now, um, this is very hard for uh, for computers to fake, right? So uh, we created a platform where anyone can um, submit, make a submission in order to be added into a list. And in order to be added to this list of humans, it's a list that only will have humans and non-duplicate humans, right? So I want to be in that list and I make videos saying, I certify that I'm a real human and I am not already registered in this registry, looking at the camera and then I have to make a submission and a deposit and you know other people will be able to 
see my submission. And if they think that I am a deep fake, they can like challenge my submission. Um, and then there is like a kind of a trial situation. It's just, um, okay, a submitter that says that he's a human and the challenger that says that, yeah, this is not a human, this is a robot or this is a duplicate the submission. So Kleros can solve this problem. You know, uh, now this goes to court in Kleros and the jurors in Kleros are going to analyze the submission and they're going to decide following a number of rules if this um, is or not a, a real human. So the result of this mechanism design um, is, which is called proof of humanity, is this list of, of humans that has like many different applications. It could be used for, for example, have you seen that when sometimes you have to log into a, a website and they, you have like some button that says, you know, log in with Facebook or log in with Google, or that takes your Google credentials in order for you to access that, that website. So you could like log in with your proof of humanity profile now, right? So, and this is not owned by Google. So Google will not know where you are going in the internet because this no, no one owns proof of humanity, only you own proof of humanity, your profile, right? So. Well, that's one possible application. And then another very cool application that we are already working on is, well, we have um, universal basic income. This, um, some people think that um, humans should receive some income just because of being human, this is a human right. And so for this to be effective, the distribution of, of, this, um, of this income, you need a list of people to receive it, right? And what happens is that people try to gain this list in the context of having more than one profile and getting more incomes than what they should have. So Proof of Humanity has this potential of making sure that each submission, each profile in that list is unique. So it it's not it, it cannot be gained. So everyone will receive just one universal basic income, right? So there are many more applications, but this is like the, the gist of it. It's like the, the, the idea is using Claros jurors in order to uh, well, make a mechanism that uh, will produce a list of unique humans that will be used for lots of different things. Yeah, I think proof of humanity has such an important business proposition. Like I, I'm even thinking a few days ago, there was a ransomware attack on um, an oil and gas company. And that's resulting in a huge, huge backlog for enormous yeah yeah and and i'm just thinking to a certain extent proof of humanity has this opportunity where uh, if you are operating within a business before tr certain transactions are approved if you're a decision maker c-suite in a company you have to have your proof of humanity set up so that someone else can't impersonate you. And then even for the general population, data breaches are becoming more and more common. Like the big ones are with Equifax and with large financial institutions. And to me, I feel like proof of humanity can be another step with um, two-step authentication, right? Like it, in addition to receiving a text message, requiring you to prove your identity, you also have to go through uh, proof of humanity's protocol to verify it's you. Data breaches are gonna be, they aren't going anywhere. They're just gonna keep increasing. So I think it's really important the work you're doing. Yeah, well, this is, um, you know, a completely different world. And, um, you know, and the, the attacker, so you don't even know who, who the attacker is on the internet. Like, um, yeah. be anywhere, it could be anonymous. Um, 
Um, the, the, the future, and this is where, you know, the world of traditional arbitration starts to, well, fall short. And lots of contracts uh, in the context of cryptocurrencies, in the context of digital business. Uh, and so are between anonymous parties. Like, you don't know who the other guy is when you transact into a centralized finance protocol, where a lending protocol, uh, that you lend money to someone who you don't know. And, you know, there's not... The, you know, there's not a, a central company that is operating this um, decentralized finance protocols. You know, so this is just a digital bureaucracy, if you want. It's a set of rules coded into smart contracts that operates in some way, which you know no one controls. It's like a public good. No one, no one controls, but everyone controls because it's owned by the community, and there is governance votes in order to make these um, these decisions of how this should operate. Uh, this is very hard for me to see how you know traditional arbitration uh, can you know get to speed. Maybe Sophie have some ideas about this. I mean, anonymity is uh, the great um, enemy of traditional dispute resolution, uh, including arbitration. And so there is no question that um, in order to to be able to address the, those kinds of dispute, there's going to be. Uh, to have to be a recognition that uh, how to how to um, to grasp uh, the anonymity that's uh, that's part that's part and parcel of these transactions. I I I'm, I cannot. I mean, that may be my my lawyer mind at work, but I cannot help but think that uh, a, a little bit like what happened with the internet, where there was this great promise of an open space without regulation. This will at one point um, attract, um, well, is already attracting the minds of regulators uh, because uh, anonymity is great uh, if you are a, someone with good faith intentions behind, but um, there is obviously a whole nefarious area of, uh, of much more uh, criminal uh, activity that can take advantage of it. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I can say about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of what the Silk Road, you know, and, and the Silk Road, at least in the early innings of Bitcoin, attracted a lot of attention to Bitcoin because even though one of the major players in uh, in the Silk Road was 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 arrested and and um, caught, it still allowed this opportunity due to the anonymizing nature of uh, Bitcoin to facilitate some 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 dangerous activities on the dark net with the Silk Road. Um, I do have one question and maybe th this could be the hardest question related to Kleros. Uh, so get ready. So I, I find it interesting that Kleros is to a certain extent attached to the umbilical cord of Ethereum because Kleros operates on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and Ethereum is a general purpose blockchain. So that's where all the smart contracts are coming from. All of the creativity, dare I say, with decentralized finance um, and now with decentralized justice is coming with uh, through the Ethereum blockchain. So Federico, I, I wanted to get your sense on challenges that the Ethereum blockchain brings to you, the, the benefits are significant, but uh, right, right now Ethereum uh, has pretty high gas prices. It's a volatile gas price. 
um, market right now, but there, there are certain ways where um, high gas prices, basically a tax for people who don't know what gas prices are, a, for lack of a better word, a tax in order to transact on the Ethereum blockchain. I'm curious with high quote unquote taxes, um, how that could affect the, the, the Clearos vision for decentralized justice. Yeah, I get, I mean, the current moment of Ethereum is of very high transaction fees. And so obviously um, this is very bad. If you have to spend, you know, $100 per, per transaction, it's very bad for resolving a whole number of like smaller claims that happen on the internet, which Clearos tries to target. But this is not the kind of things that we worry in the long term because um, we can see this as, you know, internet in 1995, you know, yes, of course, AOL is very slow. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's expensive because you have to, and you can't use the phone at the same time because you're using the phone line for the internet, but then, well, broadband came and so um, mobile and everything is like, now you have 5G and who knows what comes next. It's part of, you know, this technology evolution of um, everything starts as, as not being very, good in performance compared to existing alternatives. That's why people in the 1990s say, why, why, why would anyone you need internet? You have the fax machine. Why don't you need an internet, right? I don't need an email, right? So it's kind of this, the same type of situation. Ethereum is already working a lot in um, scalability. Um, decentralized networks have a number of technical challenges uh, in order to become like cheaper and faster without sacrificing the decentralization because one way to make everything cheaper and faster is yeah it's okay you just centralize everything into a server and then you go back to the previous you know situation of course it's going to be really cheap but ethereum uh, wants to scale uh, while keeping the decentralized aspect which is a the interesting aspect that makes lots of people want to build on top of, of Ethereum, right? So it's really not the concerns we have at Claros and generally speaking, you know, the, the long-term concerns that uh, other like people who are building um, decentralized apps, it's not like the gas price. It's, it's bad for the short term, but it's going to be solved. And like if Ethereum fails into solving this, like other blockchains will do it, um, people will migrate to these other blockchains and Clarus is in itself blockchain agnostic. So if Ethereum fails, which I, I, I hope it doesn't fail because I, I like the community and all that, but Clarus could easily work in some other blockchain without any problem. Great. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, the the Ethereum community is really robust. We, we can only hope it doesn't fail, but there are um, other options that are uh, gaining popularity if, if uh, in the short term or medium term, the challenge with gas prices aren't resolved. Uh, so Sophie, I was, I was curious to just, you know, you, you implied earlier how you have a certain understanding of the dinosaur generation of arbitrators. And I was just curious what, <laughs> what these arbitrators think about all that Federico and, and blockchain ODR is doing. Like, how do they, how do they feel about the rise of these, these new forms of justice? Right. Um, it's a difficult question for me to answer without being disparaging. 
um, I have been, um, I, I, I mean, uh, so uh, with, in co-authorship with Paul Cohen, we have been bringing these issues to the, I would say to the, um, the forefront uh, of the minds of, uh, of the arbitration community, because it is a community and it is a community of very bright people. Um, it is also a free market, as you know, um, and you have everything uh, ranging from, well, this, not, this is not gonna happen in my lifetime and I don't need to worry about it, to, oh my God, how, how exciting, how interesting. Um, let's see you know, what space uh, we can make for this new, this new phenomenon. Uh, so there's been a, a very wide range. I mean, I have now left uh, the moderation of OGMID to start a discussion group called ARPTEC, uh, which Federico obviously is a part of. And also yourself, Oladechi. Oh, a proud uh, member. I'm a proud <laughs> member, just so you know. I mean, it's a membership. It's a participation, <laughs> participation ship. But, uh, but it's, it, the idea is to, to because I, I felt very strongly that lawyers speaking to lawyers about technology is a great thing. But it's more important and more interesting for everyone, I think, if it is stakeholders from the many areas of legal tech speaking to each other, so that the developers, the entrepreneurs understand the way lawyers think and vice versa. And so I am hoping uh, there is a great deal of interest in, 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 the, uh, in the endeavor. There is a great deal of very interesting discussion. I mean, as you saw, Ladeji, last week, we had Federico talk to us about uh, non-fungible tokens, which I think for most lawyers is, was something you know, completely new. And it was done in a very... So we aim to bring, um, a, 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 I wouldn't say a vulgarization, but an understanding of what's going on in the tech world so, as not to, so that lawyers are not put off by um, not only the concepts, but the, the language, you know, is very, we, people talk about legalese, but I think in the tech world, there's also a very specific uh, vocabulary and, and it is completely understandable if one puts their mind to it. So I would say the responses is mixed, but on the whole, very positive. And frankly, I don't think the legal uh, world has a choice, but to get engaged with it. Yeah, I agree completely. And for the record, when I got the invitation to join ArbTech, I was ecstatic uh, because this is really, it, it's such an opportunity. When we think of the pandemic, you know, there, there are so, so many awful things have happened, but there is an opportunity, in my opinion, that has come from the pandemic where the expectation or the openness that people have to having conversations asynchronously over broad geographic distances, that expectation is, is getting more and more decentralized, shall I say, like more and more people are open to these types of forums um, and, and learning from other experts in the field who are just not in the same jurisdiction, but you can still learn an immense amount, even if they're in a different country or a different generation. Fantastic. Yes, that's fantastic. And that to me is the one great silver lining of the pandemic for the arbitration field is that we used to have, I mean, you could spend, as you know, your entire year going from conference to conference, but then you had to pay for it, you had to get there, you had to, you know, find accommodation. Now that knowledge, that insight 
is available free online. And instead of speaking to a room of 150 people, I now speak online to uh, maybe not 25,000 like Federico, but but certainly you know 500 people. And and it is fantastic for me to get the um, you know the the chats, the feedback of of people that um, that you wouldn't interact with otherwise. Not to mention the fact that that insight, that knowledge, really should be out there for free. So I, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, yeah, me too. And actually, some of the reasons for creating ArbTech are, I get the sense, quite similar to what I'm envisioning with Convergence, because this is all about bringing dispute resolution professionals into a community that includes technologists so that there can be more innovation and most importantly, more understanding between those two communities. Um, so Sophie, I was, if you're open to it, um, I, I was wondering whether you could share with some of our listeners how they could sign up and join ArbTech. Oh, thank you very much for um, giving me an open door to a free plug. Um, uh, you can find us. So we have a, a website in preparation, but we, you can find us on LinkedIn and you, and there is there an opportunity to get in touch with us in an email address. You can also find us on Twitter and it's arbtech underscore hub. And we'll be very, very happy to hear from you. And uh, we are um, extremely open to cross disciplinary dialogue. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Beautiful. So I didn't want to go back. You mentioned how Federico was on uh, Arbitech and he was talking about NFTs. And I was I was closely reading the thread that was being communicated on there. Federico, and I have to quote you here because I found this quote to be so interesting. You said that NFTs as a generic technology can have a huge impact in many, many fields. And I think that alone got me excited for this conversation because NFTs are increasingly popular. Um, we can look to Christie that had an auction, I think it was in March, and they sold uh, NFT digital art for $69 million. And then more recently on May 11th, there was another auction where uh, Christie sold a series of NFTs for $17 million. So if we were to equate monetary value with importance, this is this is a pretty important industry. Um, so besides digital arts, which I love, um, exactly how can NFTs play a role in different industries and maybe even with the legal industry? I mean, everywhere that you there is some um, proof of uniqueness, you know, you can use an NFT potentially like a typical example is collect collectors, you know, collection baseball cards, you know, this, um, uh, this unique card uh, is well, worth a lot. It's a piece of, you know, carton, but it's like worth $2 million just because it's the last baseball card of, um, you know, this uh, collection from 1920s. Well, the NBA, uh, started making some NFTs of what they, I think they call these top shots. And it's, uh, you can buy the NFT of a highlight of a game. Then you are the owner. And, but like you, you might ask, well, like, why do I care to like being the owner of, you know, some highlight of a game? Like anyone can watch that highlight on YouTube, right? Well, yes, but you know, there happens that you are the only owner of this highlight, right? And other people seem to value that. Um, so I think it 
in some way, like art, digital art, it has some, this uh, always had this um, challenge, uh, digital art or digital collect collectibles in general, you know, uh, it, in the end, just bits, right? Or who, why do uh, this uh, Beeple piece that was sold over $69 million on Christie's, uh, I, I can just take the file and the GPG and then, then just have it the same one that you bought, you paid 70 million, I can have it for, for free, right? Yeah, but you have the NFT and the community values you have in the NFT, and then this can translate into a price, right? When you kind of start thinking, what makes the Mona Lisa be so, you know, you could pay someone to make you a Mona Lisa pretty much like the, the same one, the, 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 like the original one, and put it on your wall if you want, right? And it's, it's going to cost you a lot less than buying the original Mona Lisa. Uh, well, but it's not the original Mona Lisa. <laughs> People, you know, value this this, this scarcity element. So, all of the activities, as well, we started this podcast discussing, you know, um, education, online education, which is just one more example of um, what Mark Andreessen calls software eating the world. So, it's eating the world through education. Software ate the world of encyclopedias through Wikipedia. It's eating the world of finance through Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. It's starting to eat the world of law through, well, machine learning and decentralized justice. Uh, well, it's eating the world of art through NFTs. Um, so it's quite exciting and quite scary uh, as you know, all these new technologies are very scary at the beginning, but um, the applications are infinite. You know, uh, this digital art is the first one and then games, you know, I, Oh, look, I now I have this uh, sword or this armor in this, you know, medieval game that my community values. Um, and so it's, um, I have this unique piece of uh, equipment, which is digital and potentially could be copied um, infinite times, but well, I have the one that has the NFT, right? So that's the one everyone wants. New world. Uh, you know, it's, we need to some time to get uh, to wrap our head around it, but it, that's what's happening these days. That's also the that's also a little bit absolutely the impetus behind Arptech is to have a forum where um, the scariness uh, can be dispelled because you can discuss it and you can discuss it with people in the know, like Federico and Joe last week, and you can have things that are, um, you know, the myths can be unmasked <laughs> and taken away. Yeah, I mean, for mediators and some alternative dispute resolution professionals, it took until the pandemic before some of them openly embraced online dispute resolution. And I, my hope, my aspiration is that through forums like ArbTech, that we don't need a, another pandemic to come for us to become more comfortable with novel technologies, that we can have forums to just speak about these things, to learn more about them. So, so I'm, I'm really excited for the value proposition, the use case of, of ArbTech into the future. Thanks very much. Yeah, and, and I'll add, so with, and this is me just brainstorming, uh, in, in the law with, with cases, um, with decisions that are made, I wonder whether people would be interested in 
tokenizing famous court cases, for example, <laughs> you know, because even, even though, yeah, <laughs> we can like famous court cases, Brown v. Board or like yeah, yeah, yeah. Trump versus Hawaii, these famous <laughs> cases. And, and of course, people can replicate, they can copy them, but it's still represented on the blockchain as the only, as the first, as the authentic um, court casing for Trump versus Hawaii, for example. Like I, I'm just brainstorming. I, I hope I someone think, I runs with my idea. That is a great you know, idea, and it like, has been done with memes, right? So yeah, why not court cases? Look, we could you could uh, look at this. Look, we could like um, NFT this conversation after it's published, and then okay, we can auction this, and uh, then people could um, you know we could put into this. Uh, rules of uh, royalties. Okay, we, we are going to split this. Okay, we're going to give you all, you put this together all the edges so 50% to you. I'm fine with 25% and I'm sure Sophie will take 25%, right? So, and then we, we can, um, you know, uh, just auction this. And if someone pays something like that, let's say we raise $1 million, so smart contracts are going to distribute these royalties in the way we agreed and we all get this money. So, um, this I mean, we were, we were joking about that with the, uh, the ARP tech discussion between Federico and Joe that Joe, uh, before the discussion had ended, I'd already put it at auction, <laughs> <laughs> which maybe he has. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but and also, also, and see, and this is something that we discussed with Joe, um, and this is something that can show us how, how the new world of arbitration needs to use new tools. Like uh, the example I gave in that, uh, um, you no know, discussion was okay. Let's say I, I you you publish uh, Oladeji this um, uh, this podcast, and then someone takes it and auctions it without asking for permission, and this is like sold in one million dollars. So some anonymous guy made this auction and raised one million dollars with some work that you produced. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who are you going to sue, and where, and in which jurisdiction? <laughs> I mean, there are there are serious IP IP law issues um, arising out of this, which obviously I'm not an IP lawyer, so I can't provide anything intelligent on this. But for for absolutely sure, um, those questions are salient. And my understanding is um, it's pseudonymous to a certain extent. Like if someone were to, well, I, I could be totally wrong on this. If someone were to to copy an NFT, which anyone can. I'm wondering whether uh, that individual would still have to kind of like timestamp on the blockchain their copying of it so that it wouldn't be their real life identity that showed up, but it would just be their public keys on a blockchain. And if so, then I can see a world where, you know, um, Clearos has a group of IP lawyers that comes together on, on the Clearos system and, and just adjudicates basically. That's the type of cases that, that Claros aims at, at uh, you know, this native digital case where, you know, this is this anonymous or pseudonymous person that if they do it right, they can very easily hide their real identity, right? And if they're experts, they will certainly do it. And, you know, as Sophie mentioned, one of the main or core principles of traditional arbitration is that you know the identity of people who are having the claim, which is not the case here. So you don't have... Even if you like, who are you going to, who would you sue? Like, and it's an anonymous address on the internet. It's kind of native, a native problem of the internet that has like not, no, no one thought about this when they 
wrote the New York Convention in 1950s, right? So it's kind of di very different. 1958. <laughs> Almost 1960s. <laughs> so my, my final question for you both, and if you listen to Colin's uh, episode in the last episode, uh, this, is, this is where he got really creative with 4K virtual reality headsets. Uh, and I love it. So my, my final question for you both is, what do you believe about the future of technology and dispute resolution that very few people believe? Uh, Fede, I'm gonna take a stab at this. Um, I, I don't know that very few people believe it, but what I'm seeing right now is that there's going to have to be a, a fundamental rethinking of what we call due process or procedural fairness and the gathering of evidence in arbitration. Um, as you know, um, the work done by people like Jeremy Balenson at Stanford um, Lab on Virtual Human Interaction is, is transformative in the way that virtual and augmented reality is being used. Uh, for example, uh, the way that they use it in, um, is, is to, for example, put someone in the in the shoes of uh, of a disenfranchised minority in the United States and get them to um, experience uh, daily life as that person in order to change certain social attitudes. But you can completely see how this would have a completely transformative um, impact on the gathering of evidence. So instead of relying on witness testimony years after the fact that this eminently fallible or you know, document evidence uh, that takes a lot of time to gather and to exchange, uh, you could completely see an immersion of the tribunal in, um, in a, an augmented reality to see exactly how the dispute arose. Um, that to me is going to be, um, I, and I feel, I, again, coming back to the question of trust, I feel that there might be more trust in that way of running proceedings than there is in the current way, which is very much ex post facto and subject to you know, lawyers going over uh, and, and tampering with people's versions of what happened. Um, that would be my answer. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Oh, it does. And I mean, it just illustrates how technology can promote empathy and understanding and, and with that um, you have more trustworthy outcomes basically. Uh, you know I was um, at an interview like when I was starting to, to, to learn about these things you know crowdsource justice and um, blockchain and you know six years ago um, I was interviewed in a program uh, and a TV program, and I was saying that well, um, Claros um, is something that um, it's a new resolution method for a new type of community, right? I and I can see where Colin was going with the 8K, uh, you know, definition because um, our the human eye. Like it, it's not, it can't like see when you reach to 8K, you know, resolution, then it's that you, you it's, there's the, I, I cannot see more than that. So it's kind of uh, you put me uh, on a helmet, VR helmet uh, with the 8K resolution, and I that's 
all of the that becomes my reality, right? Uh, so we are starting to live in the worlds of virtual reality, uh, not 8K for now, but definitely yes. Um, the Telegrams and the, the Facebooks and this, we are well this conversation we are having. We're in different countries from different places and. Uh, the jurisdiction that we are sharing basically is the internet, right? And uh, the world is going through these virtual communities. Uh, uh, I think that, you know, um, science fiction can inspire us a lot and can show us where the world is going. And, you know, the, a very good movie uh, that will tell us where this is going is, you know, Ready Player One. Remember these people who live. Uh, in a world that is very unwelcoming, the, the real mid world where, you know, they, they live in shanty towns and they're poor, but, you know, then they put on their helmet and they live in this super cool world where they can be wherever, where they want. Um, and this world will have um, these, uh, well, disputes and it's going to have the need for understanding who is human and who is a bot. And this is already happening. Um, it's quite scary because it has all of these um, elements from Black Mirror series, right? This, um, you know, this, this technology can be applied to, uh, well, good or evil. And But in a world where more and more of our interactions are online and digital, and the, the real jurisdiction where we are operating is digital, and where crowds are more and more important and they want to have a say and they want to have likes and likes are what people think that is um, important and this you know um, I kind of imagine you know in 10 years in 20 years so this Kleros being an arbitration system of for the digital world and most of our lives will happen there so this is why it's relevant. It's Kleros or, or among others. There will be there are others and uh, there are other tools, but you know digital tools. So the world, the work of, of lawyers is is going to change like dramatically in next twenty years. Saskin has been saying this for a long time, but I think that this time is going to happen because the people who are the young people now, like they are natives from the internet and they are not going to go to court for serving disputes because they are used to do everything from their phones and the next generation is going to be used to do things from their helmets. So I think that's where we're going and that's what we have to prepare for. Love it. And Colin described it as um, in the next 20 years, basically, uh, the only people we will see in person are loved ones, close friends and family members, and everything else will be predominantly or exclusively digital. And I, I think VR, like VR is just at the, in the early innings. The, the price point is still pretty high, but once it reaches scale, I don't think people are gonna be going, driving uh, miles, getting on the bus to go to school or to college. I think they're just gonna put on a VR headset and be with their peers. So, so I, and, and I can see that also happening um, with how justice is administered. I do have a question about that, and it's an open question because I don't have an answer. But I, I, um, I sit on a, a few cases with state parties or state entities, and I think they are reluctant adopters of that model mm -hmm. just because they have, um, I don't know, some sort of um, 
accountability to their people and maybe the, the decorum of the traditional model suits them. I'm not saying it's immutable, but I think they, may, they might be late adopters. I could be wrong, I could be wrong. May, certainly, maybe not in the, in the, in the Western world, but in, in other jurisdictions where uh, process and, and yes, decorum and authority has, has a great importance. That's a good point. That's a great point. So with that, I, I just wanted to thank you both, Federico, Sophie, thank you so much for joining Convergence, uh, for sharing your wisdom with all of us. Um, and, and I'm excited for the conversation to continue on Cleros or on ArbTech, wherever. Um, I, I'm excited for future conversations. Thank you so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to exchange, always a pleasure to spar with Federico. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, yes, please, um, please continue to share um, your ideas and your wisdom on our tech. We're always very, very um, grateful. Well, thank you for having me, Oladeji, uh, and yeah, let's keep talking in our tech. All right, great. Bye, everyone.